This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. What are some of the greatest challenges facing institutions of higher education? How can institutions of higher education do better to reckon with our own histories of racial inequity and racial injustice? Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley, co-hosting this episode with Abe Goldberg. In this episode, we talk with Millie Garcia, president of the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, also known as ASCU, and Jonathan Alger, president of James Madison University, about the special responsibility of institutions of higher education to contribute meaningfully to the communities in which they are situated, and about the role of higher education in advancing diversity and democracy. Enjoy the episode. As president of the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, Dr. Garcia, you represent colleges and universities from across the country at the national level. What are some of the greatest challenges emanating from federal policy for institutions of higher education? Oh my, I could spend two hours speaking about this. There's so much I can say, but I'm going to concentrate on just a couple of things. I think the first major challenge is the lack of congressional enactment of an updated reauthorization of the Higher Ed Act. It's been over 12 years and counting. You know, significant changes have occurred in colleges and university enrollments during that time that are not reflected in federal policies related to federal investment in institutions of higher education, like student aid and looking at increases in student debt and college access, retention, attainment, as well as equity and inclusion issues that we are facing right now today. Some, you know, we have some significant enrollment changes over the last 12 years that include the diversity and demographics of our student population. And when you look at the increase nationwide, Hispanic enrollment has grown by over 55%. Black enrollment has increased by over 2%. And white enrollment has decreased by 12%. You know, the growth in college-going population is going to be among people of color and first-gen students, low-income students. And if we look at K-12, you know that it's over 50% of the students in K-12 are students of color or first gen or a low income with Hispanics now being over 25%. And so when you look at federal higher ed policies, we need to look at things like financial aid to ensure that these students are served well and that we are delivering America's promise and allowing them to have a college degree. In addition to the HEA or Higher Education Act, you know, let's look at Title IX, the recent changes to Title IX brought to institutions, right, be, right as the institutions were trying to open up with this horrific pandemic. It's created challenges for our institutions. In addition, we have the higher ed uh, section 117 requirements that now all of a sudden we have to make sure we're crossing, dotting the I and crossing the T on any foreign gifts that are given to institutions, another uh, encumbered, uh, something that it's encumbered by our presidents with the little time they have in our campuses that are dealing with so much. 
And then most recently is the executive order, and it's number 13950, which is the one on combating race and sex stereotyping, which is prohibiting us, our campuses in particular, to stop doing the very thing that we are as an America, the diversity and understanding diversity and being communities of difference and how that makes America great. So we have all of these challenges. And I just hope that with the new 117th Congress, they'll begin to address many of these policy issues that are impacting all colleges and universities across the country and are over 18 million students. And for ASCU institutions, it's over 3.5 million. Well, I, th I think Millie gave an excellent summary of some of the major policy challenges and the lack of legislation in some of these these areas that has really hurt us in, in recent years. I would just add, I guess, a couple thoughts. Uh, as Millie was talking about the changes since the Higher Ed Act uh, was reauthorized, and you think about the changing demographics of our country, we know that the greatest strategic resource we have is our people, and especially our young people, but only if they are allowed to develop to their full potential. And we have a system, at, especially at the federal level, when you look at federal policy, that in many respects has moved away from higher education as a public good and treats it more like a private good. Uh, and that, of course, corresponds with the burden that has been put on students and their families to pay for higher education. And that gets directly to the questions about financial aid. I think related to that is the fact that, you know, we talk about higher ed and K-12 as two completely separate systems, but really in the 21st century, we need to be talking about education policy from cradle to grave for a lifetime. And that's something I don't think our country has done very well. And I think it's time to think about the pathways in higher education, uh, starting with you know pre-K all the way up to college and beyond to adult and continuing education. Uh, that's what federal policy, I think, needs to be thinking about. We have many, many so-called non-traditional learners in higher education and at ASCU institutions. And in reality, those are the learners of the 21st century. All of us are continuing to learn throughout our lifetimes and our federal policy has not caught up with that fact. The last thing I'll mention that's just yet another burden uh, has been at a time with increased global competition, we have some particular restraints now on recruiting and retaining international students. And that has been yet another challenge with federal policy that has been particularly difficult for ASCU institutions and other colleges and universities. We are we're having this conversation um, as part of this year's um, Engagement for the Public Good Conference to address some of the real challenges our communities face. Um, this year, especially since the police killing of George Floyd, there's been a renewed focus on the need for racial justice and reparations and to address systemic racism in the country. Um, and, and that starts at the local level um, on up to the, the federal level. I wonder if both of you can, can talk a little bit about how institutions of higher education um, can better reckon with their own histories of racial inequity and racial injustice. Let me begin by saying that I congratulate you and JMU and President Alger for being so bold as to be engaged in this even before the killing of George Floyd. And you need, need to be applauded for that. We're proud that JMU is an ASCU institution. 
But as we look at institutions across the country, it is going to be extremely important that if they don't have it already, that they have a consistent, intentional plan on dealing with the own history of their institutions that deals with racial inequity and racial injustice. And that plan should have benchmarks and you should be monitoring the progress. You know, when we look at institutions, you have to make sure that you are having spaces and places where students feel comfortable and are taught on how to have difficult dialogues on campus with civility, where they can actually speak about these issues from their own experiences with groups that are diverse so that they are learning from each other how we live in a global society right here in the United States. And our students need to feel that and understand that from them, each other, from staff, and from faculty. They really also need to, institutions also in that plan, need to look and see how welcoming they are to the communities they serve, beginning with their own surrounding communities. Ask you institutions are stewards of place. We care about the communities in which we live. And so how are we reaching out and knowing our communities in their language and space and bringing those communities onto campus so that they see a welcoming environment that sees the richness of diversity throughout the campus. Great, I completely agree, uh, Millie, that having that kind of plan regarding your history, and I would say it starts with education. Uh, so, you know, the first step, I think, is for our institutions to understand our histories and the larger context in which we've been situated. So, for example, uh, James Madison University is in Virginia, and both the K-12 schools and colleges and universities were segregated in Virginia, of course, for much of our history, as well as in many other states, until fairly late in the 20th century. And that legacy doesn't disappear overnight, so we have to understand the history and the continuing impacts, and we need to tell those histories. So we are trying to be more intentional on our campus about researching and, and sharing that history with work that is led by a history committee looking at the entire landscape. Um, second, I think, is taking a fresh look as part of this plan at all of our policies and practices and how they may perpetuate racial inequities, even if they don't appear to be discriminatory on their face. Um, this is really the work that people talk about when you talk about going beyond just uh, preventing racism and, and truly being anti-racist. So an example of that is thinking about admissions uh, and outreach policies. Uh, I look at our own university in recent years. One of the things that we did in examining our policies was we looked at how standardized tests were being used. And we realized that that was a barrier for some students in applying and getting accepted at the university. And when we studied the impact of those test scores, we realized that they were actually not a particularly good predictor of success at the university. And so we went test optional. Uh, and we waived uh, fees you know, for, for students to apply to the university from school districts where it was difficult for them to apply. So we tried to identify some of those hidden barriers uh, that were preventing access for a lot of students. Uh, the, the second uh, piece related to that with the plan is I think taking a critical lens 
to every aspect of university life in this way. Another example I talked about recently, we had a conference on study abroad. And of course, that's an area that's it's a wonderful, transformative experience for a lot of students, but it's expensive. Uh, it often requires students to be gone for an extended period of time, and there are a lot of families for whom traditionally that has not been possible. So now we are looking at our international programs to try to be very intentional about opening them up to participation by all students. And the last thing I would mention, I, I love the fact that Millie talked about working with our community. Um, we have a new task force on racial equity at James Madison University, which is a large and diverse group with faculty, staff, students, alumni, and community members all working together on many different areas, whether it's student academic progress, co-curricular life, faculty and staff recruitment and retention, athletics, alumni involvement, business relationships, et cetera. The process there matters, getting the community involved, working with us to reflect upon our history together, thinking about those barriers to access, getting outside of our bubble. I think that's the kind of partnership we need to embrace going forward. John, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I'd like to add something on education, which I think is an excellent point that you bring up. It's really educating all the entire campus and community and that it's just not for students of color. And that to underscore that diversity of all kinds brings better solutions to problems different perspectives on how to teach, or even in science, when you look at things like sickle cell anemia, when we started to realize, when we started to look at people of color, the differences on how disease and symptoms affect others and how we were able to look for solutions. And then of course, role models for all students, for all students will live in a global society. So President Alger, you spoke earlier about uh, different ways in which to um, improve access to historically marginalized and minoritized groups. You mentioned specifically standardized testing. What other ways can universities really work to achieve better access to, to diversify campuses? Yeah, this is one of the key questions for all of our institutions and particularly for ASCU institutions, which historically have had that mission of access and opportunity. The first thing I'd say is that you've got to be proactive with your efforts here, not just sit back and wait to see who applies and who gets accepted at the institutions. And you can't just keep doing things in the same way. So you, you need to understand the barriers uh, that, that students face and then try to overcome them. So. Uh, one of the things we are doing at James Madison University is to focus very intentionally on outreach to students before they are seniors in high school and before they start applying to colleges. So for example, we have a lot of summer camps geared towards younger students from historically underrepresented groups to get them on a college campus, to understand what college life is all about, to be able to visualize themselves on that campus. We try to go out to school districts, particularly in schools where we know there are students that ought to be applying and that we want to apply to a place like JMU, uh, but that might not think about us without that proactive outreach. We have a program called Professors in Residence, where we have faculty members embedded in middle schools and high schools to counsel students about those opportunities to make sure that they take the right types of courses so that they are academically prepared for college. 
One big example that we started a few years ago here at JMU is called the Valley Scholars Program for the Shenandoah Valley, our, our own backyard, where we realized there were a lot of students for whom college was, was not even a dream. They never, ever would think that college was a possibility. They, were, they would all be first-generation students, parents that did not go to college. And so we recognized we needed to do something to intervene. And so we have a partnership with seven different local public school districts. We identify students at the end of seventh grade, still in middle school, who have academic potential. They'd all be first-generation to go to college. And we tell them, if you work with us for the next five years, we'll make sure that you take the right kind of curriculum, that you've got mentoring and tutoring, that you're on on the college campus every month to learn about the opportunities in college. And if you keep your grades up, there's a full tuition scholarship waiting for you at JMU. This is a life transforming program. We've got hundreds of students involved. The first two cohorts are now successfully in college and doing very well at the university. But a lot of these are students who never would have dreamed of going to college without that kind of partnership and intervention. So I think there's a lot we can do if we are proactive and particularly if we partner on access with K-12 schools. Thank you. Dr. Garcia, can you speak to efforts you're seeing across the country to improve access to higher education, especially as you talked about the changes in demographics related to high school graduations? I would begin by saying, I said earlier, that our institutions need to see if they're welcoming. And why, what I mean by that is, do they see people working at the institution that look like them? When you have your uh, College of the Arts or you have musical events, do they see a diversity of music and events? When you have art exhibits, who's art? When you look at curriculum, so, so that when you bring these students on campus, they see an environment that will be welcoming to them. And in addition, we, as I said before, we need to go out into the community. Some examples, uh, during, during Black History Month, every California State University president and members of the board have a partnership with an, a Black church. And we speak at each of the campuses when I was there, at each of the churches when I was there, about the California state system and how that was a place for them and engaged in speaking to their youth after the services and then also speaking to parents. It's very important that we speak to families because in many cultures, the family is extremely important if they're going to college and where they're going to college, speaking to parents in their language. So when I was at Dominguez Hills, we had a a fair called the Educational Fair, now is the time. It was completely in Spanish. We partnered with 109 community groups and we partnered with Univision and we had it all in Spanish set up like a Kia, going from K through 12 with different tables through, through our community college through college and ended with a FAFSA workshop in Spanish. The first year, we thought we'd have about a couple of hundred. We had over 5,000 people. The la my last year at Dominguez Hills, we had 35,000 people on a Saturday on campus, all in Spanish. People want to know, parents want to know. There's also a group across the country called the Parents Institute on Quality Education, 
where people from the campuses go to K-12 and have classes in the evening for parents to tell them what it would take to get their family members into a California state system, or they also do it in the middle of the country. And they walk away with a pamphlet that they could put on their, on their maybe near their TV or on their refrigerator that says starting in the sixth grade, what they need to start taking all the way up through high school in order to be guaranteed a seat at that campus. So those are the kinds of things that I see happening across the country. I mean, we are seeing campuses actually doing outreach plans to ensure that the new communities that we're serving are coming on our campuses. Dr. Garcia, you just mentioned, you know, this this really you got us speaking about this really important topic of ensuring that our institutions are welcoming and you know do our can, do our students see themselves here and I think one of the most important ways um, in which they they need to see representation is also in faculty um, and and do we have enough faculty on our campuses that can really support um, uh, students of color um, or historically marginalized or minoritized groups. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what colleges and universities can do to recruit and retain and support uh, faculty and staff of color. I'm going to go back to we need to educate why we need faculty of color and we have to engage the academic senate the provost, the deans, the chairs. We also have to uh, teach how to recruit faculty of color so that everybody has that opportunity. So what do I mean by that? So at in New Jersey, when I was in New Jersey, the campuses, and they're still doing this, would make sure that those departments that had openings would get the data on which institutions were graduating people of color in the disciplines in which they were looking for, and had the chair or the chair of the search committees, they too have to be educated how, to reach out and build the relationship with those institutions in order to let them know that this was a welcoming environment. Number two, there are programs across the country that gather uh, PhD candidates. And we would make sure, and institutions are doing that today, we'll go to those conferences to meet them, watch them present, see, and then talk about the, the wonderfulness of your institution and why they should pick you when they are looking for a, a faculty opportunity. During the interview process, not only should you be with the search committee, but if you're bringing people who are different, whatever that difference is, do they see a community? Who can they talk to? Where will their students, where will their children go to school? Where will they get the foods they need? Where would, you know, so that this way they see the institution helping them. Where will they live if they're coming from out of the neighborhood? And then you have to make sure that when they come, they're supported that the, the department itself supports them and that you hire not only one, that you're, it's not the only person in what department by themselves. 
and ensure that the faculty are mentoring this new person into the college environment. Yeah, I would, uh, those are all uh, great and essential thoughts in this work. I would just add a, a few things. Uh, when we think about the hiring, tenure, and promotion criteria, I think that's something we really need to take a hard look at across the entirety of the university. Are we embracing different types of scholarship? Uh, are we embracing interdisciplinary approaches to the big issues of our time? Uh, I think that's work that is, that is sort of overdue in, in higher education that we're starting to take a serious look at. And, you know, Millie mentioned search committees. Um, there's a lot of research, of course, on this that shows that the best prediction of the outcome of a search is to look at the composition of the search committee. Uh, it's sort of called the mirror effect, right? That merit looks like me, and that's just the way people think. Uh, so having anti-bias training is important, but you've also got to look at the composition of, as Millie said, who's involved in the search. I'll never forget, uh, way back when I was in law school, one of my favorite law professors had chosen me to be his research assistant and was really encouraging me to go into teaching. And his wife told me once, well, you remind him of himself when he was your age. You even look like him. Well, guess what? I was a white male, and so was he. So, you know, that, that kind of informal mentoring, uh, you know, needs to happen, of course, across racial and ethnic and, and gender lines. One of the things I've done as a president is to uh, mentor ACE fellows, as well as um, fellows through an NCAA Pathways program, aspiring athletic directors. Uh, and I think out of the 10 mentees that I've had, only one of them was a white male. Uh, and so I think we all can do more on that front. And then to, to Millie's point about setting that welcoming environment, one of the things that I've tried to do as a president with other members of senior administration is to sit down regularly in small groups, uh, breakfasts and lunches. We were doing this before the pandemic. It's obviously gotten a little harder right now, but with faculty and staff of color to hear about their experiences, their challenges, um, and to lift up these individuals in, and their work so that they're not invisible. We had a, a faculty panel recently at a recent board meeting that was really inspiring, and it was an opportunity to bring out some of these voices in a very public way. While doing that, though, of course, we've always got to be careful uh, about not getting people so involved and engaged on every committee, for example, that you're overburdening them with service. Uh, and that can be one of the traps that, that particularly for faculty of color, uh, that can happen in higher education. So we've got to be conscious of the burdens we're placing on people, even as we're seeking to make sure that they are fully engaged and not invisible, but very visible uh, as part of the work of the campus. Campuses really across the country have been doubling down on efforts to work on racial healing, equity, inclusivity. And I'm wondering, Dr. Garcia, if you can speak to specific examples of ASCU uh, colleges and universities that are doing this well right now. Uh, yeah, what I'm, as a matter of fact, I should say that that's one of the things that is on all ASCU presidents' minds. And presidents themselves are learning how to do a better job in doing that. So they starting with self-reflection. And one of the things that we're doing is having webinars for ASCU presidents to think that through. I mean, we had a wonderful presentation by uh, an administrator and a faculty member who's done research on this. 
And they, at San Diego State, put together a 10-point way that presidents can think about this very deeply and carefully. And so presidents are saying, okay, first I have to learn how to do this. Then I've got to make sure, as I said earlier, that we have the spaces and places. Presidents have to use their bully pulpits and be able to engage in civil discourse and debate. We've moved away from teaching and really role modeling debate in front of our students that is so necessary for healing. And where people need to recognize the pain that's going on right now and why these individual groups need to be uplifted on our campus communities. It's Black Lives Matter. It's our Muslim population. It's our Asian American population all being really targeted throughout the United States. And our institutions need to become that safe space. Uh, so for example, many, many campuses across the country have these centers that look at students who are undocumented from all countries and make sure that that's a safe space for them. We have, we really have institutions working with all of the student clubs, working together across race to lift each other up. President Alger, it's interesting because when I was thinking about Millie's response in addressing the need for students to experience and have practice in debate, in discourse, in addressing public issues, and thinking about how everybody can play a role in making a campus more inclusive and more welcoming, it takes me back to a comment that you said at the beginning of this conversation about the public good of higher ed. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to how that serves our campuses, but then also how does that prepare them to strengthen the democracy that they're inheriting? Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, we, we have to get out of this mindset uh, of higher education is that isolated ivory tower. We are very much a part of the communities in which we are located, as, as Millie noted earlier. We refer to ourselves as stewards of place, and that extends to being stewards of democracy and its future. Uh, that's, of course, the work that the Center for Civic Engagement helps lead here at James Madison University. But to me, uh, part of what that means with, with the public good is that everybody has a role to play, and it's certainly true for our students. So we need to be training uh, students to help provide the leadership. When Millie talked about discussion and dialogue and how much that matters for healing, we need to be training students to give them the tools to help lead those efforts. I think about this new task force on racial equity that the university started here, um, and one of the things I've talked about with their leadership is that the process matters as well as the recommendations that they come out with. So um, one of the things I asked them to do with, with each working group was to reach out to the community, both on campus and off campus, to have conversations about what have been some of the barriers, what have been some of the past challenges, to make sure that we give space for voices that we haven't always heard from in the past. And there are, of course, symbolic actions that we can take that also matter. Not long ago, JMU gave an honorary degree to a community and civil rights activist named Doris Harper Allen. It was a remarkable story. Uh, Doris is someone 
who grew up in our area and was not able to go to college at JMU because colleges were still segregated at that time. Uh, years later, though, she came back to the community and was essentially a very prominent community and civil rights activist. And we gave her an honorary degree, and it was a tremendous moment of healing, frankly, for the entire community. We also named a residence hall recently for Paul Jennings. Uh, who was Paul Jennings, you might ask? Well, uh, he's actually an important historical figure in his own right. He was enslaved by James and Dolly Madison at Montpelier, but after Madison's death became a free man and an abolitionist in his own right and was an important historical figure who literally wrote the first memoir from the White House. We had his descendants, one of whom actually was a JMU alum, uh, with us for that event. And again, it was an opportunity for that kind of racial healing with the larger community. So I think we should be thinking about everything that we do and, and who we honor and how we honor people uh, and look for those types of opportunities as well. That's a great point, John. And I, and I also think one of the things that I've seen happening across the country is that presidents and their cabinets are showing their hurt and their feelings and become part of the discussion with students, faculty, staff, and community. The, you know, the, people have to stop thinking that we're untouchable, that you can't speak to us. They've got to see that we also are in pain with what we're seeing and be able to speak about that with our community. Ask You plays a really important role and, and has done so for the, for the last two decades um, on, on this issue in terms of educating for democracy um, in elections and beyond. Um, Millie, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, Ask You's American Democracy Project and how some of its member institutions are using this election as a teachable moment, um, but also as a means to get students involved they have been working diligently, the American Democracy Project and all of Ask You on all of this, because as you said, it's more than voting. It's deeper engagement in civic life and in elections and beyond. And what we are seeing across our campuses is that we are helping them create programming and curriculum to build a deeper understanding of democracy and democratic practice. And we are helping faculty and staff, providing them training and resources in areas like deliberative dialogue, understanding and learning digital and media literacy, and what is truth, what is fact, and what is not. Very important. We have classes on that. They're helping faculty teach about that. Conflict resolution classes and how to deal with conflict resolution. So they're also engaging the students in deliberative dialogues about policies and issues. We had a nationwide, for example, debate watch, and they were watching it across the country with our American Democracy director and staff online, and then got into a conversation about what was happening during that debate. And so we are preparing our students to have a, a civic agency in participating in democracy. And the other thing I would say is, you know, they're also ensuring that this is not only now, 
but we have to talk about lifelong learning. We have to do a better job in lifelong learning on civic engagement and civic learning and engaging in the political process the way that JMU does. Not many, not many institutions are that far ahead of that. And so just one example from Sam Houston I'd like to share because it is about the curriculum itself. They had a lot of students coming in and not understanding science. And I'll make that connection. So what is, they have a course called, what is the role of science in society? And what, and they created this course that is also engaging the citizens role of science in society and how does it affect their lives and how does the policies affect their lives? So it, it was a wonderful course that went in 15 sections it taught over 500 student freshmen. And when they assessed it, the critical thinking scores had skyrocketed. And students started to understand how science affects their, not only their daily life, but policies and practices in government. Can I just point out, sorry, um, um, you know, that, that also kind of goes back to our earlier conversation as well about the importance. Uh, you just mentioned Sam Houston University focusing on um, science and society, and that also goes back to the need for more cohesion um, in, in an overall education plan um, because states, you know, have a large... Um, a large amount of influence over over education policy um, and different curriculums. Um, you know, the, there are there can be disparities there, and so there is such a great need for ensuring um, that there's continuity between that K-12 or pre-K um, all the way to to college um, experience. No question. I really think that P-12 we should start. They should start learning civic engagement and civic learning. It's not so in small chunks all the way along the way. And so that our, when they come to us, they are ready to go even deeper into these, these courses and their actions. Just a, a couple of thoughts to, to add to that. I, I love the fact, Millie, you talked about civic agency and, and having students actively involved in discussions and debates and information literacy when it comes to uh, civic engagement. Our own research and uh, thinking to my colleagues here from the Center for Civic Engagement who provided great leadership for this. When we looked at uh, the climate on campus, one of the things that we learned is that faculty and students were often reluctant to engage in, in civil discourse on difficult polarizing topics. It was almost like the concerns about Thanksgiving dinner when you're warned, you know, not to talk about politics or religion with the relatives. Uh, that, you know, students and faculty were saying, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't know what other people's points of view might be, so we just don't go there. Uh, and so instead, the conversation was driven underground largely to social media, which is not necessarily uh, the healthiest place for all of that to occur on, on a college campus. So. You know, one of the things I think we learned from that, as you said, Millie, is how do you incorporate this across the entire curriculum? You've got to train the faculty, and our Center for Civic Engagement has been great at helping faculty to think about how you can incorporate civic engagement, whether you're teaching science or music or history or, or po political science. Uh, just one example here along the lines of what you described, we have something called the Health Policy Summit, 
uh, where students that are studying things like healthcare administration come together and they learn about important healthcare challenges, public policy challenges, and we actually bring in legislators and policymakers who listen to the presentations and give feedback to the students about the proposed solutions that they are developing. Uh, and the last thing I'd say here is that we need to think about uh, the set of skills that students need for civic engagement, which turn out to be many of the same skills that employers want to see. So you don't have to pick one or the other, workforce preparation or civic engagement, they go hand in hand. These are skills, you know, Millie already mentioned information literacy, the ability to discuss and debate based on facts and evidence and research, critical thinking, respectful listening, working in diverse teams, and ethical reasoning. So if we think about those skill sets and how we can equip students to give them that sense of civic agency, it will help prepare them not just for civic engagement, but also for life and for their careers. I, I really appreciate how the examples that you all are sharing, and I say this as a political science faculty member, aren't necessarily from political science, right? That that really it's, it's all students, uh, regardless of major, that we should be preparing for active and informed participation in civic life and that we can connect public issues of relevance to those disciplines to make it relevant for the students. And so we ask this question of all of our guests, what would you do to strengthen our democracy? I would begin by saying that I, will need to continue to be, I uh, borrowed this from one of our speakers, an angelic troublemaker. Quite frankly, all the changes when it comes to diversity and democracy have has been done by using our bully, bully pulpits, by engaging in dialogue even when it's not welcomed, by continuing to speak about that education is the civil rights issue of our time, and that education and higher education is preparing all citizens for democracy, and that education has to be supported by our society. And until we are equitable in offering all our citizens the right to a higher education, we have not reached that and must continue to do everything in our power to advocate, to protest civilly, to debate, to dialogue, to teach in order for us to reach democracy. Yeah, I think I, I, I love that, that image, Millie, and, and to me, Colleges and universities really need to be the model for our society of communities that can be truly inclusive and diverse and where people come together and learn from and with each other, engage in vigorous uh, civil discourse, uh, and that's, that's how you learn and grow, uh, and also how you solve problems together. I think we need to be the models for our society, and if we can't do that in colleges and universities, I don't know where it's gonna happen. I, I, I would just add, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about developing that sense of agency in our students, which starts with learning the tools and structures of democracy so that they can use those 
uh, tools and structures and be engaged with them. Uh, and it goes to me, I always think about the fact we're, of course, named for James Madison, the father of the U.S. Constitution. And I think of that preamble, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. The whole concept here is that every generation has to pick up the torch and make those improvements, Millie, that you are talking about. Uh, and that is the work of every generation. And as educators, we have the great privilege of working with future generations who hopefully will do a better job than we have of addressing some of the major challenges of our time. I think it's a great privilege and a great responsibility for all of us in higher education. Absolutely, Jonathan. No question on all the points you mentioned. And I am I want to say that I am proud of our ASCU campuses. Of course, beginning with you at JMU, with the great work, we're not perfect, but we are definitely engaged in preparing students for diversity and democracy. 